Two scripture passages this morning guide our thinking. First, from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And from Galatians 5, verses 1 through 6. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. But by faith we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God. David Brooks, in a recent New York Times column, suggested that in the American experience, there are three great aims of political movements. Libertarians love freedom. Um, the idea that if you just leave me alone, I will make of my life what I want to make of it. So, leave me alone. And that is as decent a definition of freedom in our political culture as we might come up with. But it's only one definition. On the other end, Brooks would say, that those on the left, progressives or liberals or whatever you want to call them, uh, would argue that equality is the goal of nationhood. If freedom is the goal of the libertarian on the right, equality is the goal of the left. And so we engineer systems and laws and structures to give people a sense of equality, to make them equal before the law, to grant them uh, that uh, equality of opportunity. Brooks then argues that in the center, what uh, he reaches back deep into the American historical experience for and calls uh, the tradition of the Whig Party, which no longer exists, but he says social mobility is really the end goal of the American political life, that you can aspire to be more than you were when you arrived here, that your children will do more and be more than you have done, that mobility is the goal of a society. Freedom quality, mobility. They all sound good to me. Seems like, seems like in the American experience, everybody's got a little sliver 
of what works. And the goal is not to bludgeon each other with our experience, but to share together in learning from each other and hearing each other. The story of the Exodus is a story of discovering that similar kind of reality. Yahweh comes to Moses at the burning bush and he says, you're going to free my people. You're going to liberate them. And Moses says, well, you know, I'm I'm a middle-aged entry worker in my father-in-law's business. Uh, I, I don't exactly have the social mobility to lead a movement. Yahweh says, don't worry about that. What are you holding? Well, my shepherd's staff. God says, throw it down. So Moses obliges. God says, pick it up. Picks it up and it's a snake. It's the symbol of Egyptian imperial power. Moses, you'll experience all the mobility you need to do all the work I've sent you to do. To make your people free. And to create systems that make them equal before me and each other. Not as a rabble, but as a nation. And so Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And there are plagues. And there's all of that. And finally... Finally, they cross the sea and they head into the desert. And of course, the first thing they realize is, oh, we forgot to pack lunch for the trip. We don't have enough food. We don't have enough water. We can't even get along with each other. And in the space between their liberation from Egypt and the time they arrive at Mount Sinai, they've already come through all of these crises of how will we survive this journey? And they arrive at Mount Sinai. And God calls Moses up to the mountaintop. And he delivers what we've come to call, I think unfortunately what we've come to call the Ten Commandments. We call them the Ten Commandments and we say it like we're sucking on a lemon. The Ten Commandments. When in reality, they're ten words of freedom. They're ten words that shape what people do for and with one another and with God to live in covenant. To live in genuine, authentic community and relationship. Here are the ten steps that Yahweh lays out. But we can't just jump headfirst into the Ten Commandments and and look at them one at a time or as a group without understanding the backstory of these ten words. Without understanding what's going on behind the scenes as God reveals these ten words of freedom. And so Exodus 21 and 2 give us this backstory, this picture of how the ten words work. First of all, it's a renewal of the ancient covenant. We, we, we talk a lot, well, I don't know if we talk a lot about it, but we talk a little bit about 
how God is silent between the end of the prophetic era and Jesus arriving. You know, and some writers talk about the 400 years of silence. Well, there's another 400 years of silence in the Old Testament. From the time Joseph brought his brothers and his father to Egypt to the time Moses spoke. Probably about 400 years. And in that time, the people of Israel had forgotten that God makes covenants. That God's fundamental relationship is to come to us and say, I will be your God. You will be my people. Not a quid pro quo, but a relationship. Not, I will be a clockmaker of divine proportions who creates the universe and winds it up and sets it into motion and sits back and has coffee break. I will be your God. I will walk with you. I will champion you. I will encourage you. I will strengthen you. I will confront you. I will challenge you. You'll be my people. Which implies community. We'll be people together. Exodus 20 verse 1 begins with that covenant formula again. I am the Lord your God. Yahweh seeks to renew the covenant. He speaks and the covenant formula comes forth again for the first time in generations. The children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob hear the good news. I am the Lord your God. Now, that reality in and of itself is wonderful, but there's more. There's God proclaiming a mighty act. You will have a new identity. No longer will you be the vassal state of the land of Goshen. No longer, children of Israel, will you live in this, in, in this ghetto in Egypt, in this Bandistan, in this home away from the home that you've been intended to live in. No longer will you be set on the reservation and kept there as a kept people. You have a new destination. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, the text says. There is a new destination involved. One that God is taking His people on a journey toward. But there's more. God is also liberator. There is a new relationship. No longer are you chattel property of Egypt. No longer are you slaves. You are a people there is a new reality. You are given hope and a future. You can dream again. Life is not the drudgery of work for a slave master, but the freedom to explore and become all that God has made you to be. 
Exodus 21 and 2 set a foundation for the ten words of freedom that are to come. Ten words that we'll explore this summer uh, here and there as I preach through the summer. Ten words that give us a way to relate to God and to one another in covenant and in hope. It becomes easy for us to read the text and say, well, that's the Old Testament. We're New Testament people, right? Well, yes and no. We are people of the whole book. The, all of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, is our, is our book. It's our library. 66 different takes on what it means to walk with God. And the Apostle Paul, in working with the Galatian church, Galatian churches, has a word to say about this, this gift of freedom, this, this work of God to create covenant. He wants us to understand that freedom as that which Christ has come to fulfill and to make complete in our lives. And so in Galatians 5, 1, he talks about the source of freedom, that, that it is Christ that has set us free. It isn't, it isn't our hunger for freedom. It isn't our hunger for equality. It isn't our hunger for mobility. It is Christ who has set us free. Paul takes the Christ event and puts it into the center of these ten words of freedom and says, He fulfills this law. He fulfills these ten words of freedom. He makes them possible in our lives. And so Paul says, therefore stand firm in Christ. He doesn't explain what standing firm in Christ means precisely and in depth here. But he, he creates an attitude and an aspiration that freedom is found as we stand on the foundation of Christ as Lord. That if we want to know what true freedom looks like, we commit ourselves to following Christ daily in life. But Paul's writing to a group of Gentiles, a group of non-Jews. And the big argument, the big backstory in the early church is, how do you become a Christian? Do you become a Christian by embracing Jewish culture? Is, is Christianity found through the means of cultural appropriation? Do you keep the Sabbath, eat a kosher diet, and if you're a man, get circumcised? If you, do those th if you did those three things in the ancient world, you were considered a good Jew. The question that the Galatian churches, these churches in Asia Minor, where there were many Jews who were no longer living in Palestine, but living in that area, where 
Jews and Gentiles interacted, the, the question was, do I have to become like them in order to follow Jesus? And Paul is saying, no, you don't. Good Jews need to do that. And Paul was a practicing Jew his entire life. But he said to Gentile believers, you don't have to do that. You don't have to culturally appropriate. Christianity isn't a white, middle-class faith. It's a global faith for everyone. And it invites all of us, regardless of race or color or background, to figure out together how to be community. And that is hard work. Because we tend to bond in community with folks that are like us. And with folks that like us. It's hard to be in community with folks who are different from us and with whom we differ. But Paul says, stand firm in Christ. Freedom is not found Salvation is not found in cultural appropriation. And Gentiles who sought to embrace Judaism to follow Christ simply engaged in a great adventure in missing the point. And so Paul says, what are the disciplines of freedom? And he talks about two realities. He says the importance of waiting in verse 5. But by faith we eagerly await the Spirit, through the Spirit, the righteousness for which we hope. By faith we eagerly await. Patience. While it shows up in Paul's list of fruits of the Spirit later and doesn't quite make the cut in the love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, patience is critical value for the church. That we are patient with each other as God is patient with us. That we wait eagerly for it. That we live in anticipation, but also in patience. Paul says the other discipline of freedom is the centrality of love. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Faith that waits, faith that loves are the only faiths that matter. You can have a perfectly orthodox checklist of theology. And if we haven't learned patience, and if we do not practice love, well, all we've got is good theology. Trust me, that doesn't get us very far. It was the dancer Martha Graham who said, freedom to a dancer means discipline. That's what technique is for, liberation. It's why 
jazz musicians play scales. It's why basketball players do layups and free throws. The, the regular discipline of patience and love open the door of our lives to the freedom that God has for us. And so the, the Torah, the Old Testament, is a book of grace. We, uh, we always want to contrast grace versus law. False dichotomy, great adventure and missing the point. There's grace everywhere in the Older Testament. Because both the Old Testament and the New Testament simply remind us that we are all beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. And so this grace that we see in the ten words of freedom reminds us that God has always sought a covenant with His people. God has always been the God who reaches to us and says, let me be your God and, and please be my people. God has always sought to give His people a new identity. No longer slave, but free. No longer dead, but alive. God has always sought to liberate His people from the choices that ensnare them. And so when the people of God sin, when they break covenant, when they break faith with God, God makes a way back over and over and over again. And in following Christ, we find the way to live in freedom. A freedom grounded in patience. Freedom that expresses love. Bread for beggars. So this morning, some questions for us to think about and a book I'd invite you to read. If you've never heard of Alan Kreider, he was a good friend of mine and a friend of Anabaptists in the UK for 20 years. His last book before he passed away recently was, is entitled The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. And yeah, that sounds kind of scholarly and kind of, I don't know, are there pictures in this book? Are they, you know? But let me commend it to you for your serious reading because he, he asks the question, why does Christianity grow so rapidly in the, early Rome, in, in the Roman Empire? Why in its early years did it come to take on 20, 30, sometimes 40% of the population? And not just nominal believers, but believers who practiced the faith fervently. How did that happen? Kreider says it's because God's people learned to be patient. They learned how patience and love connect and how to live in that covenant of I will be your God, you will be my people.
So this morning, some questions that grow out of Kreider's book and these passages. How do we live out the ancient covenant formula in our day? How, how is God our God? How are we God's people? How do we live that out today? In a, in a culture that wants to split us apart, that wants to atomize us, that wants to embrace the individual's right to freedom, how are we the people of God together? How do we rely on each other, depend on each other, cling to each other, hope with each other, bicker with each other, argue with each other, and stay in the journey with God? How do we live out the ancient covenant in our day? Secondly, what's the new identity we need? Not many of us have grown up as the property of another human being. There, there are those who live out that legacy, but not many of us in this body have ever been owned by another human being. So the slave-free thing doesn't always seem to work. So what is the new identity? What is the essence of freedom for us? How do we live that out? Third, do we know God primarily as a rule maker or as a liberator or both or neither? How do we understand God? If we understand God as that far off deity who is kind of a cranky old man, well, probably we're not going to get real close to him. But if we understand God as our bud, our best friend, guy we hang with, Jesus, he's pretty cool. Probably not going to affect the way we live on a daily basis. Who is God for us? How do we stand firm with Christ to frame it the way Paul does? What does that mean for us? How do we do that? And how do we live in patient ferment and hopeful love? When in doubt, in recent months, I've uh, looked at what uh, Pope Francis has to say. And so one more thing this morning. Pope Francis says, that which gives us true freedom and true happiness is the compassionate love of Christ. Freedom, which Christ has, for which Christ has set us free, is not the capacity to do whatever the heck we want to do. Freedom is the capacity to live in community with each other, to be on the journey together, to let God be our God, and for us to be God's people. He gives us ten ways to organize life together so that we can do that. As we go forward this summer, we'll look at each of those individually. But for now, God's at work drawing us together with Him. May we find the patience to let love ferment so that God can be our God and we can be His people.